Mr. Trump has reasserted that he would not budge on negotiations to reopen the government until the Democrats agree to fund the multi-billion dollar project to build the wall. I can't tell you when the government's going to be open. I can tell you it's not going to be open until we have a wall, a fence, whatever they'd like to call it. I'll call it whatever they want. There's really no incentive or very little incentive for the Democrats to move closer to the president's demands, knowing that on January 3rd, Democrats retake control of the House and have a much stronger hand to push these negotiations. Hello, I'm Leon Krause from Los Angeles, California. Welcome once again to Trumpcast. I once heard that every crisis eventually escalates in such a way that it finds a specific name, a specific face to mourn. It has happened before, if you think about it. The way the world approached the Syrian refugee crisis changed dramatically after we all saw the heartbreaking picture of three-year-old Alan Kurdi, the Syrian boy of Kurdish background who was found face down after having drowned on the sand in Turkey. Just recently, another brutal picture of a child changed the debate around America's support of Saudi Arabia in the war in Yemen. It was taken by New York Times photographer Tyler Hicks in Yemen, and it shows Amal Hussein, a famished seven-year-old, barely strong enough to breathe, her arms thin, her ribs protruding, her eyes lost in a haze of melancholy and despair. She died a few days later. Now, the Central American migrant crisis has its own name, its own face to mourn. Seven-year-old Jacqueline Cal grew up in an indigenous community in Guatemala. According to her family, she dreamed of owning a pair of shoes and learning to read and write. A few weeks ago, the girl joined her father, Neri Cal, on the long journey to the United States, which has become a frequent one for an increasing number of people who live in extreme poverty in Guatemala. They crossed the border between Mexico and the United States as part of a larger group on December the 6th. After surrendering to the Border Patrol, they waited seven hours, seven hours at the New Mexico Border Patrol substation that was apparently ill-equipped to handle such a group that included, of course, children like Jacqueline. Father and child eventually boarded a bus that would take them to a larger facility 90 miles away in New Mexico. Jacqueline hadn't been feeling well. She apparently had vomited shortly before the bus ride. And then tragedy struck. At some point during the drive, she stopped breathing. She passed away a day later. It is still unclear why exactly Jacqueline died. But what is very clear is that her passing, along with the picture of her still in Guatemala, wearing a blue dress, her dark hair sleeked back while she stares into the camera with a certain sadness, should shake numb consciences. Central America faces an unprecedented humanitarian crisis that requires far more than a wall and other nativist punitive measures. What can be done about the situation in Jacqueline's home country of Guatemala and the other two countries in the so-called Northern Triangle, Honduras and El Salvador? A few weeks ago, when we interviewed Mexican journalist Carla Sabludovsky right here in Trumpcast about the migrant caravan, she explained the reasons why people leave everything behind and begin a journey to the United States that might lead to heartbreak, sometimes brutal heartbreak. They are fleeing poverty, corruption and extreme violence. They are simply trying to survive. This is a major humanitarian crisis, and children like Jacqueline Cal will keep 
dying trying to escape it unless other countries in the region decide to help. But what can really be done? We will explore the possibilities when we return. But first, according to Trump's logic, Mexico will be paying for his border wall through NAFTA. Many are puzzled as to how this would work. What are you so happy about, honey? Oh, hey. Hey, hey, hon. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how excited I am that the Rosenbergs are going to pay for our new car. Oh, my God. You need to give this up. It's not going to happen. It is going to happen. They're going to pay for our new car. Why would they pay for our new car? It makes no sense. I've always said that they're going to pay for our new car. And to be honest, they practically already have. How do you figure that? I was playing poker at Jim Rosenberg's house the other day, and I won 13 bucks off him. I mean, that's practically a new car right there. $13? And where did that $13 go? Well, it went into my little pocket. But it's practically a new car. And that's not it. The other day, I took our daughter over to the Rosenberg's house to sell Girl Scout cookies. Uh-huh. And they bought 12 boxes of Samoas and one box of Thin Mints. And you know I take a 50-50 split off those profits. What? Of course I do. Honey, that money goes to the Girl Scouts. Every dad does that. Anyways, I'm taking 50% of that money and putting it towards the new Just because you are getting money roughly from Jim doesn't mean the Rosenbergs are paying for our car. Okay, look, I'm going to be honest with you. We basically already have a new car. At this point, it's just a matter of finishing it. Finishing it? Yeah, we just need to finish the new car. We already have it. We don't even need a new car, honey. I'm not going to pay for that fucking car. I really cannot think of a better guest than Cynthia Arnson to talk about the multiple challenges in Central America, Mexico, and the United States. Dr. Arnson is the director of the Wilson Center's Latin American program, and she's one of the country's foremost experts on the Spanish-speaking countries of the Western Hemisphere. Cindy, welcome. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. I would like to first get a sense of the crisis. What exactly has been happening in what is known as the Northern Triangle, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador? Well, these three countries have been marked by some of the highest levels of homicidal violence in the world. And this has been going on now for some years. And I think it caught U.S. attention most recently, certainly before the U.S. midterm elections with the migrant caravan, but really beginning back in 2014 during the second Obama administration when there was this crisis of unaccompanied minors reaching the U.S. border. So that was a time when all of this sort of simmering problems that had been around for decades, if not centuries, in Central America burst into the U.S. consciousness and caused a policy response that is still unfolding. Corruption is also a big problem there, right? Corruption is a big problem, not just in Central America, in Latin America, around the world. There have been any number of efforts by civil society organizations, by government institutions, and by the international community to play a role in improving the levels of corruption and giving some meaningful response to citizens' demands for good governance and an end to the kind of daily corruption that they experience. There have been two notable efforts supported by the international community in Central America, one in Guatemala, the UN-sponsored Commission Against Impunity, the CICIG by its initials, Mm -hmm. and in Honduras, an OAS-backed organization called the MAXI, which is similarly an effort by international experts to work with local institutions to investigate severe acts of corruption by government officials, by people in the private sector. 
And those efforts obviously have been met with a great deal of resistance by people who feel that their power and privilege is threatened by these kinds of investigations. And I think it's even more important for the international community to renew its support for these kinds of mechanisms. How's the economy in those three countries currently? The economy in Guatemala of the three Northern Triangle countries is probably the strongest. Honduras and El Salvador have both suffered from low growth and a fair amount of stagnation for a long time. Central America in general, Latin America in general, is not doing all that well. In terms of economic growth, the levels at the regional average are between 2 and 3%, and in Central America, more between one and a half and 2% per year. So these are economies that are simply not capable of absorbing the numbers of young people that come into the labor force every year, whether or not they have a high school diploma, and especially if they've dropped out of school or do not have higher levels of education. Let's talk about the exodus of the last few years. Cindy, there's a debate about the reasons why people are leaving. Some say that people are leaving those countries, the Northern Triangle of Central America, because violence in the region has become simply unbearable. Others say that the problem is primarily related to the region's economic troubles. Why are people fleeing in such numbers? It's really a combination of the factors that you've just mentioned. Obviously, gangs have control of entire neighborhoods, have extorted the population in addition to killing people. They extort, they pressure people to be involved or to give money to them. And if not, there are reprisals either against an individual or his or her family. So that is continuing to be a very severe problem. Honduras, El Salvador in particular, to a certain extent Guatemala, but not nearly quite as entrenched or developed in Guatemala. There's also endemic poverty, but it's also important to note that it's usually not the poorest of the poor who are trying to migrate. People who migrate typically pay thousands of dollars mm -hmm. to a coyote or a trafficker that they then owe lots of money and typically leave family members around who can be threatened if the money is not paid back. So there's the lack of meaningful employment, a lack of uh, of opportunity, and as you mentioned, I mean, just poor governance, which is from goes from corruption, but also just a lack of decent schools, a lack of decent health care, all the kinds of chronic problems that have characterized these societies for many, many years. Why has violence gotten so much worse in the last few years? I'm not sure that it's so much worse than it has been. In fact, there are some indications that homicide statistics, at least in a place like Honduras... But recently, are, no? It, it has improved going, recently, no? Exactly. That's improved recently. The levels of violence of homicides in a place like El Salvador have been higher in the 1990s than they are now. But these are countries with weak judicial systems where gangs operate with impunity where law enforcement has a difficult time challenging gang authority over entire neighborhoods in major cities and where the judicial system simply doesn't prosecute criminals. So the levels of impunity seem to constantly reinforce um, mm -hmm. the crime and violence that exists because there are simply no penalties or consequences. So everything that you've described has generated this exodus. And President Trump has insisted in a mostly punitive approach to the problem through deportation from the United States, but also family separation and a zero tolerance policy very clearly aimed at scaring people from even considering making the journey to the United States. 
Is this set of policies working in any way? It doesn't seem to be working in the short term. There are certainly more people from Central America arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border this year than there were last year. It's possible that a message will filter down that will make it very difficult for people to contemplate making a journey when they know that the that the zero tolerance policies are so dramatic but what's also very interesting to me certainly we saw it with the most recent migrant caravan is a kind of blind faith almost a religious faith that people have that somehow either god will provide or something will open the hearts of people in the united states when they reach the border because the decision itself to leave is taken out of such a high degree of desperation. And I think what the Trump administration has been trying to do, and we will only see if the numbers go down, I doubt that they will, is to say that to the extent that people believed that if you arrived at the border with a child, that you would be reunited with a relative pending an asylum hearing, or that once you got to the border, you could apply for asylum and then spend some certain period of time in the United States while your case was adjudicated, to the extent that those have created pull factors or the illusion that getting into the United States will not be so difficult, I think it's precisely what he's trying to counter. But my my feeling, and I think a lot of people that have followed this issue for a long time, is that until the underlying conditions in Central America improve to such an extent there will be a massive push factor out of these areas where people simply can't live. I was with a caravan uh, a few weeks ago, and one of the questions that came to mind, and, and I'm still thinking about it, is does the difficulty of the journey matter if the alternative is death? When you put it in those stark terms, I think if people feel that they've been threatened, that other relatives have already been killed and that they're going to be next, or if they don't get a certain young person or teenager out of the country, that person is going to be recruited into gangs. The situation is so dire that the difficulties on the journey seem to pale in comparison. And this has always been a dangerous journey, whether it was on the top of a train known as the beast, the bestia, or where people knew that there were attacks by smugglers, that there was extortion, there was sexual violence, not only from coyotes, but from corrupt officials along the way. I think people have seen that some number of people have made it in, and mm -hmm. therefore they will try, and if they fail, they'll continue to try. Now, the big question is how to improve the situation. You referred to it a second ago. What would it take for the immigrant flow to diminish? Give me a couple of priorities. Thinking of those three countries in Central America, a couple of priorities. The conditions that drive the migration have to change fundamentally, and that means making continued progress to reduce levels of violence. It requires an investment in creating opportunities for not just young people, but for adults to earn a living and a, and a decent wage. And it requires a transformation of the way governments see their responsibility for delivering some form of quality social service, whether it's through education or through healthcare, Those are obviously very, very long-term things. Mm -hmm. The United States has been investing in this, in these areas in a serious way, really only since 2014. I mean, once the wars in Central America ended, the war in the Contra War in Nicaragua, or the Civil War in El Salvador, or the use of Honduras as a 
staging ground for the Contra War or the internal armed conflict in Guatemala. After these Cold War conflicts came to an end, the United States, as well as other European donors, didn't exactly turn their backs, but the countries were certainly at a far lower level of priority than they had been when there was this so-called danger of communism on our doorstep present. And it's really, I think, from, say, the end of the Salvadoran Civil War in 1992 until the crisis of migrant children in 2014, there was this long period of relative benign neglect. And I don't want to exaggerate. It's not like the United States vanished or that European countries and especially Nordic countries pulled out altogether. But the aid levels respective or compared to the level of need for reconstructing those societies after very violent, very brutal conflicts was no more, nowhere near in proportion to what was necessary. Now, the aid to Central America, the aid that the American government gives to Central America, still, I mean, to put it mildly, pales in comparison with the immense amount the U.S. gives elsewhere, no? There are a number of middle-income countries in Latin America that no longer qualify for U.S. development assistance. There are still a number of forms of security cooperation, counter-narcotics cooperation, but actual development assistance that is invested in projects to help poor people really only occurs in a handful of countries of the region. I'm not sure I'm qualified to comment on the amount of assistance going into Latin America versus other areas of the world, but I think it's certainly the case that since the migrant children crisis in 2014, the U.S. Congress has poured significant resources into Central America. The first installment that was approved by a bipartisan majority of the U.S. Congress was about $750 million. Those amounts have been increased. And notably, even though President Trump wants to insist that countries do more to keep people at home, has threatened repeatedly to cut off aid and in the two budgets that he has presented to the Congress in 2017 and 2018, there were dramatic cuts in foreign aid, including to Central American countries, and it's then the Congress that has put this money back in. The new Mexican government has recently put forth an ambitious plan to invest in the Northern Triangle that includes a $30 billion investment over the next five years. For Mexico, it's a massive amount of money. It would be a massive amount of money for the United States. That's 10 times what the United States has assigned to the region over the last two, three years. Do you think aid, just plain aid, is the way out? It depends on how that aid is directed because there are kinds of development project aid or community policing aid that are very locally based. And you at the U.S. Agency for International Development, the Foreign Aid Agency of the United States, has been doing those kinds of things and with a great degree of success over a number of years. But you need infrastructure, you need security, you need to create the conditions not only for foreign companies to invest, but for local economic elites to invest. You have to reform and improve the transparency of government institutions, the tax authority, the education system, the customs system. If you remember in Guatemala, former President Toto Perez Molina and his vice president are behind bars because of a multi-million dollar, hundreds of millions of dollars in scandal related to the customs agency and the way things were marked up in order to provide an opportunity for skimming. So there are reforms at so many different levels that need to take place. 
in institutions. There are investments in infrastructure, in education, in providing education for the jobs of the future, not just having people in farming co-ops that are perhaps viable, perhaps not viable in a globalized economy. There needs to be greater transfer of technology. So Central American coffee farmers, a very important export throughout Central America, not just the Northern Triangle, have means of resisting diseases like coffee rust that can destroy an entire crop in the in the space of a year. And then over the long term, societies that are experiencing extremes of climate, whether it's droughts or flooding or sea level rise, have to be able to have a capacity to adapt and be resilient in the face of those environmental threats. The Mexican government tried to bring the Trump administration on board with this major development plan for the region. But the result has been less than ideal. The Trump administration has committed, when it comes to USAID, to an almost symbolic increase in aid. It promised some sort of investment that if OPIC, the government agency that helps American companies invest, finds commercially viable projects, it will lead to investments, apparently $2.5 billion. But that's a big if. Last week, the Washington Post urged the administration to invest in, really invest in the region, a call to a, a sort of Marshall Plan. Do you agree? Would that be in America's interest? I certainly think it's in America's interest. And then the question is whether the Congress, whether the American public, whether the White House and, and the executive branch are prepared to make that kind of commitment. And we've seen only really one, perhaps two other instances of these massive aid plans, obviously the original Marshall Plan after the end of World War II, when the threat of Soviet influence and Soviet inroads in Europe was very great and was the principal motivation, whether the negative of threat of more migration and continued migration into the United States is enough of a threat to get people to invest more, I simply can't predict. I do think that their foreign aid is always a tough sell. For members of Congress looking to their own voting publics, it's never been terribly popular. One thing that the administration could do that we haven't touched on, Leon, is the the folly of canceling temporary protected status for hundreds of thousands of mm -hmm. Salvadorans, Hondurans, Nicaraguans, Haitians. These people don't have an opportunity to go back to And they've been living productively and have U.S.-born children living in this country for so many years. The decision to cancel TPS was one of the most short-sighted things. And cruel, I might add. Cruel. Exactly. Exactly. Because there are people who have grown up here, who barely speak Spanish, who will be sent back to countries that are utterly incapable of absorbing them in any kind of meaningful way. So it's... Um, It's really short-sighted shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, choose your metaphor. It was a really bad policy decision. Do you think this resistance to invest in nation building, I'll use the term because I think it's exactly what would need to happen, as you very clearly described in the beginning of our conversation, is this resistance to do that hypocritical from Trump if the president really wants to stem immigration flow? I'm not sure it's hypocritical. I think it's important to underscore that the United States or any outside power really does not have the capacity to transform a society, to transform a government, to make things happen that otherwise wouldn't. There is the need for 
local ownership for the national governments and the departmental and the municipal governments throughout the region to take ownership of these issues and drive it forward. And I think there was a process that did take place thinking about where sort of mini Marshall plans have been successful. I mean, in Colombia, I think there's an important example where the bulk of the resources for so-called Plan Colombia came from Colombians themselves, did not just come from the United States. And the reform efforts of institutions like the police, like the military, came from within and was supported from without. And I think that's the formula. But that's a different size of economy, don't you think? Exactly. But it's a different formula. There are very few things that can be forced down people's throats. And then you look at a case like Honduras, which recently had a presidential election, where there was a lot of questioning of the legitimacy of President Hernandez's victory. And uh, the United States did not back any of those. And the president was inaugurated and continues to be in power when there are these various very serious questionings of his legitimacy, including by the Organization of American States and other Honduran entities. So these are very difficult processes to drive from the outside. There has to be local partnership and local buy-in. One of the big problems, like you mentioned, is corruption. Implementation of any amount of aid is a big challenge in the Northern Triangle because corruption is an immense problem in the Northern Triangle. How do you foster institutional reform? Well, there have been some successful models. If you look at what the CICIG was able to do with the public prosecutor's office, the so-called public ministry, if you see what the attorney general in El Salvador has been doing and driving forward anti-corruption cases. There are charges pending, I think, against three former presidents of El Salvador. There are pockets of reform. And the question is, does the United States support those or do they not? And for the, for at least in recent history or just in the last few months, there's a lot of evidence that the United States, the Trump administration, is backing off its support for those efforts to work with local institutions in a place like Guatemala or in El Salvador and really support the reformers. And it's very unfortunate because the transformations were beginning to take place. It was the public ministry in Guatemala that was gaining confidence, that was gaining the support of people. When people had a complaint, they would go to the, the public ministry. They wouldn't necessarily just go to the offices of the CICIG. And there are these ways where international committed, experienced civil servants can work with counterparts as long as the institutions themselves are led by people who support this mission. And you've seen that support erode mm -hmm. significantly in places like Guatemala. Finally, Cindy, just last week, Homeland Security Secretary Nielsen announced a deal with the new government of Mexico that would allow the United States to send back potential refugees back to Mexico while they wait for months or maybe even years until their process is completed. This is a truly immense concession from Mexico with potentially severe consequences. What's your reaction? My reaction, as you mentioned, is that this is an enormously generous offer by the Mexican government to the Trump administration. Obviously, Mexico, not just under the presidency of López Obrador, but in the past, has had a great deal of sympathy for migrants and for migrant rights. The vast majority of 
Latin American immigrants in the United States are, in fact, from Mexico. And so there's a sense of solidarity. And that was certainly seen during the migrant caravan and the offers of help and food and and shelter along the way. And now for the government to say that they will house these people, they will give them work permits, is an enormous gesture. At the same time, Mexico faces, as, as you know better than I do, its own massive challenges in terms of development in southern Mexico, in terms of labor force inclusion, in terms of quality education, quality health care. It's not clear that there, over the long term, will be the budgetary support for this or even the public opinion support for this. And there have been those unfortunate outbreaks of anti-Central American migrant sentiment by Mexicans who feel and question why Central Americans are getting benefits when Mexican nationals themselves have so many needs. So let me be provocative. Is Mexico actually paying for the wall now in a way? Mexico's never going to pay for the wall. You know that better than I do. (laughs) Virtually through housing thousands of migrants now for months and years. I think it would be the wrong metaphor to to use. What Mexico is doing is showing solidarity with migrants who are leaving situations that are very dire and are leaving for reasons that have to do with a fundamental improvement in the quality of their lives. And Mexico sympathizes with that and therefore is willing to show this kind of solidarity. And we'll see if the Trump administration reciprocates this gesture in any way of real importance to Mexico and its national interests. But it is a major uh, political concession to Trump, right? Not sure I would call it a concession. If anything, it's it's an expression towards migrants, and it is a friendly hand extended to the Trump administration after a period, certainly during the campaign and during the U.S. campaign, where López Obrador was very critical of President Trump and where Trump, as we know, has been critical over and over again of Mexicans and Central Americans included, calling them criminals and rapists and people who should be bad hombres who should be kept out of the U.S. So I think it's more a sense that Mexico is prepared to take positive steps to address the situation that are in Mexico's interests that also are pleasing to the United States and show good faith in terms of the U.S.-Mexican bilateral relationship. I envy your optimism. So finally, Cindy, how do you see the crisis playing out in the next couple of years? Give me the best case scenario. I think the best case scenario is that the significant commitment, the focus on these migrants will spur a renewed commitment in the United States and among other donor countries to continue these efforts to reform the situation in Central America to address the underlying root causes. And that over time, these kinds of changes and support will start to have a cumulative effect that will improve the situation, not just at the margins. I think that's the most optimistic scenario. How likely that is, I'm not sure I am willing to wager. I would say I'm cautiously optimistic that that could be the case. But once again, without commitment at the leadership level in Central America, these kinds of changes are not going to be possible. Cynthia Arnson is the director of the Wilson Center's Latin American program. Cindy, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. 
Thank you. Pleasure for me as well. That's the show for today. Tell us what you think. We're on Twitter. I'm at Leon Krause, L-E-O-N-K-R-A-U-Z-E, and the show is always at Real Trumpcast. And if you like listening to Trumpcast or are a Slate fan, I have one more step for you. Sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35, which is the equivalent of a couple of good books. One, if it's a fancy one. So I think it makes complete sense. Go to slate.com slash trumpcastplus. That's slate.com slash trumpcastplus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Marie Elena Ochoa. Kate James, Asher Perlman, and Steve Waltine performed today's sketch. I'm Leon Krause. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>